So continuing this chapter called Understanding Dharma and this uh, particular section is called The Trapper's Snare. We're continuing. So the Buddha wanted us to practice meditation, to listen to the Dharma and investigate and to see according to the truth. The truth of the river. If it flows south, let it flow that way. Don't fight it. So this is the um, in relationship to the last uh, passage uh, yesterday about uh, wanting to steer the river in a different direction. And uh, uh, the, um, the basic uh, uh, say flawed nature of that kind of uh, thinking. If it flows south, let it flow that way. Don't fight it. If there is a person with the eye of wisdom who stands by the river, sees it flowing south, and can't accept that because it's just the nature of things, there is no conflict or frustration. That is dharma, that is nature. So just to read that again. So <clears throat> if there's a person with the eye of wisdom who stands by the river, sees it flowing south and can accept that because it's just the nature of things, there's no conflict or frustration. The water flows in its way, and that's all there is to it. That is dharma, that's nature. There's ageing, sickness and death. In the beginning there is birth, in the middle ageing and in the end breaking up and disappearing. Those who can contemplate and see the truth of this will be at peace. The Buddha taught about the wisdom that knows sankhara. Water is sankhara. This body that we suppose to be ourself is merely composed of earth, water, fire and air, and they're all flowing constantly. Since being born, being in the womb and flowing out into the world, we've kept on flowing. Formerly small children, growing to adulthood, getting older and heading for old age, flowing right up to the present day, flowing according to nature. When we see this, we can see that it's not really a being, not a person, not self or other, it's just nature. Whoever will cry over it, it's still just the same. Whoever may laugh over it, it's still just that. Whoever tries to impede it, it's still that. It does not endeavour to please anyone. The Buddha urged us to look into this. It's something that is not permanent or stable. If not known as it actually is, it's a source of suffering, because this nature is not a being or a person, self or other. There's merely earth, water, fire and air. That's all. In the end, they separate and break up. This is the law of nature. So uh, a couple of aspects uh, of this, as um, uh, I've been saying before, with uh, sometimes the, uh, the way that uh, Lumpur speaks, it can seem as though there's no uh, effect that any of our actions or our attitudes uh, can have uh, upon things. Uh, uh, and it can seem like there's a kind of... Um, uh, see, uh, taking a stance of passivity or, uh, or a, a, a quietism. But uh, what he's talking about, as I said a few times already, he's talking about the basic framework. So within the framework of our life, we can do things. We can choose to come to a monastery, we can choose to train our minds, we can choose to read a Dhamma book, we can choose to practice meditation, or, or we can choose to uh, behave in, in indulgent or foolish or selfish ways we, the choices do happen 
But the bigger context is these bodies were born. <laughs> they breathe in, they breathe out, they'll keep breathing until one day they stop breathing. And that's the the framework. So within the, the greater s- scope of of um, uh, say the, the the functioning of nature, the the lawfulness of nature, then action and uh, choice can have its uh, effect to a limited degree, and that's uh, and our choices do make a difference. So that that's one of the reasons why uh, the, uh, the we can practice, and that that's uh, one of the things that the Buddha made clear is that uh, it's not uh, his teaching is not a fatalistic teaching it's not a deterministic teaching and so when uh, philosophers and teachers of his time said you know that karma is fixed that you uh, this just like a like a ball of string it'll unravel you know and, and then it comes to an end when, and life stops and uh, what will happen is already fixed and determined and preordained the buddha said no that's not the case it's uh, uh, if that was the case, then liberation would be impossible. Uh, and it's also, it's not chaotic. Other teachers would say that there is no law of cause and effect. Things just happen randomly, and um, they might seem to have uh, sets of connections and relationships, but uh, that's not the case. The Buddha said, no, <laughs> there's cause and effect. The laws of cause and effect do work. And the choices that we make in the here and now that's what makes the difference. That's the, the fact that the mind can uh, act on the different intentions uh, uh, in the in the present moment. That's what makes liberation possible. And so that there's a kind of key point of his teaching that it's not a, uh, life is not a, a deterministic or fixed process, uh, and it's not totally random either. But there's a, the laws of cause and effect, the laws of nature function. In such a way that the the attitudes and intentions, the um, uh, the choices that the mind makes moment by moment, they they do have a, a an effect uh, to uh, to some degree on the on the natural order. They do have an impact. Choosing to say certain words, choosing to sit in a certain spot, choosing to take certain actions, they do have an effect. Um, and that was one of the, one, in a way, one of the miraculous things about the Buddha's teaching is it's by skillfully arranging the realm of the conditioned in terms of our actions, our speech, where who we live with, uh, and how we how we fill our days. Uh, actions and attitudes in the conditioned realm can set the situ- can set the the, uh, the environment to most easily awaken to the unconditioned. That's a, in a way the kind of framework of Dhamma practice. It's how amazing that we can through through uh, uh, say the skillful use of the conditioned then the unconditioned can be realized then uh, as he's um, been using this example of water a, a river flowing in a particular direction and not arguing the fact the river flows this particular way um, that uh, so water is a sankara and so then the uh, also earth water fire and wind they're all sankaras and they're all in a constant state of change and um, as uh, uh, he sees this and he underscores uh, what, when we see this we can see that it is not really a being not a person not self or other it's just nature and uh, i find this is a, a you know, extremely significant aspect of dhamma teaching and understanding and i sort of talk about it over and over and over <laughs> essentially what we're aiming to do with the practice is to shift 
uh, a view from a self-centered perspective to a dhamma-centered perspective, to rather than see uh, this life and uh, who and what we are in terms of a personality, in terms of a, a, of a nationality, a name, a story, and an age, an address, um, and so on and so forth, that to see this body is part of nature, this mind is part of nature. Every aspect of the body and mind is intrinsically a part of the natural order. Even things that humans have created, like a chair or a recording device or a table or a book, you know, that these, I would say, are still part of the natural order, having been brought into being through the aspects of, of mind and body and uh, uh, the materials of the world and the ingenuity of the humans, which is all part of the natural order. So uh, shifting that view so that we see that the, the this this body, this mind, is nature, dhamma, the, the citta is, is dhamma, the citta is a, an aspect of nature. It's not a person, doesn't belong to a person, it's not an individual, not a, a, a fixed and separate entity. And so it takes <laughs> a huge amount of, of, of effort to counteract the, the powerful conditioning of our lives. So I know I'm an individual, I'm a person, this is my name, I'm Ajahn Amaro, and uh, this is uh, where I, uh, I I live, this is what I do, this is my, my, uh, my story, and it all seems so real, so solid, so inarguable, and so taking that, that world of seemings and designated um, say ways of talking about things and piece by piece looking at it and sh uh, shifting the view to say well what part of this body is not part of nature what part of this mind is not part of nature and then piece, uh, so then uh, we can see that calling uh, this a person or an individual it's a convenient fiction it's not a, a fixed and absolute reality and, uh, and then as Lumpur says um, that uh, whether we laugh over it or cry over it or who, if we try to stop it, um, uh, it all st it all functions in exactly the same way. Also, I felt this this sentence here: uh, uh, nature does not endeavor to please anyone. Well, that's a, a good way of putting it. <laughs> it's it's not trying to be convenient or or um, uh, or doesn't have any doesn't favor one being or another at all works according to this vastly complex and intricate sets of causes and effects that we call dhamma niyamata, the, the laws of nature, the, the lawfulness of nature. Um, uh, it doesn't endeavor to please anyone, it just functions the way it functions. It's like uh, when, uh, when rain falls, it hasn't got, uh, it doesn't, doesn't choose, I'm going to fall on this person rather than that person, you know, I'll, I'll fall on them. He's a good lad, so I'll, I'll rain on Jitasangaro instead. <laughs> he deserves to be rained on. Like, it's ridiculous, it's totally ridiculous. Excuse me for using you as a random example. Presuming you're immune to it. But yeah, the rain, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absurd because the rain just falls and wherever we happen to be, we might feel that the rain is falling on us with, <laughs> with malice or forethought, uh, with intention, but it's not. It's just nature doing its thing. And uh, the, it's a, it doesn't endeavor to please anyone. And um, 
Uh, I feel that's a helpful reflection on that. The Buddha urged us to look into this, something that is not permanent or stable. It's merely earth, water, fire and air, that's all. In the end, they separate and break up. This is the law of nature. And as I was mentioning the other day, um, we might think that, oh, there's more than 100 elements. Um, uh, it's not just earth, water, fire and, and, uh, and air, but the the four great elements, the four Mahadhatu, they represent intrinsic qualities of all matter. So whether it's carbon or oxygen or nitrogen or, or uh, phosphorus or sulfur or whatever, um, earth element represents solidity and the crystal structure, the, the, the formed nature of, of matter. Water represents cohesion uh, and what holds things together. Fire represents temperature. Um, and uh, so water represents kind of cohesion, viscosity, um, fluidity. Fire represents temperature, and then air represents vibration, vayodatu. And so these are intrinsic properties of the material world, whether it, whether it's um, iron or carbon or oxygen or hydrogen or nitrogen, or whatever. They all have these uh, aspects of of uh, a form, a fluidity, temperature and vibration, oscillation. Are there any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're reflecting on the elements of it and uh, looking into the sort of the science a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's a good idea. But, um, it seems to be the solid, you know, both a solid and a liquid, they both have these um, intermolecular bonds just in the solid they're more rigid and fixed mm -hmm. in the liquid they're more, they start to break apart a bit mm -hmm. um, and then in the gas you know it expands it's all to do with the temperature you know depending on the temperature mm -hmm. you know, whether it's solid liquid so it feels like um, the temperature is present in all mm -hmm. in all three other elements because mm -hmm. um, that's what depends on whether they break apart these into molecular bonds or not. So it's just, you know, sometimes, you know, I think in the teaching it says, oh, the earth element goes back to the earth element, the water back to the water. You know, the, the, the yes, that's right. And yeah. it's like, well, the heat element, it's present in all of them anyway. And the exact combinations of whether they actually go back to one or the other, it depends on the temperature and maybe I'm just being a bit sensitive. No, I think it's a good point. Uh, to me, it's a bit of a figure of speech. Uh, it's like a, a, um, a way of talking about the elements separating, or the you know the, the, that which had formed together as a as an object like a chair or a, a being. It's a way of speaking about the dissolution of that particular temporary entity or thing that had formed, and so that uh, it, it's a good point. I'd say it's more. It, it's not like there is. It's not like the Plato's world of of forms, if you're familiar with that in Greek philosophy, where the, uh, so that uh, Plato, the Greek philosopher, had this idea that there was this realm of perfect forms. So uh, in the realm of forms, there is the chair, the kind of ultimate primordial chair, and every chair participates or is, is informed by that primal chair in the realm of perfect forms. So that sort of, when this breaks up, it's its temporary chairness returns to the, the that domain of of, um, of uh, perfect forms, 
So I think that has largely been shot down by most other philosophers <laughs> since then. But yeah, Plato was a, he was a brilliant person, but I think he <clears throat> that was um, it's kind of a language that sort of relates to that sort of uh, um, that idea as if there was a place where all the water element lived, mm. and then it all sort of gathers there, and then. The, the the liquidity is borrowed by this particular um, uh, uh, this particular collection of uh, of, um, of matter that's gathered in this spot, and so that it's it's like using that like uh, like a uh, a concept like the the realm of perfect forms, and that so I would say it's, it's more of a figure of speech. But rather than any represent, representing anything actual in a material way, as far as I understand it, would relate to it. There, there's not a place where fluidity lives <laughs> or cohesion lives, and then uh, when, the, when it comes to when when the, when it rain falls, it borrows some of that fluidity in order to be rain or to be to be water. I think that. Uh, it's a um, just a, a manner of expression. So to continue, if we wish to practice Dharma and live according to Dharma, we should look at nature. Have you noticed trees? There are there are big ones and small ones, tall and short trees. When the dry season comes, the leaves fall. When the rains come, the leaves appear again. When the time comes to fall, they fall. When the time comes to grow, they grow. When the time comes to dissolve, they dissolve, just like us. That is the nature of Sankara. We are born, we age and fall. Then we take birth again, like the trees, like the leaves, not different. So just for people who've never been in Asia, um, the, uh, uh, the Southeast Asia, uh, then the, there are three main seasons. So the uh, <coughs> this is now the the cold season, the Hemantotu. And so this is, um, uh, the weather is, is cool, but, the, uh, but it, it doesn't rain very much. And then this continues through until about March, and then the, the hot season begins. And so then at the, um, at the end of the, the, uh, the Hemantotu, the, the cold season, is that usually when the, the, the leaves fall off as the heat rises, still there isn't uh, any rain or very much rain. Um, and so that then the, the autumn or the, uh, the, the leaves are, are falling a bit more steadily throughout, throughout the year, but they, uh, they tend to uh, fall off in larger numbers during the hot season. And then the rains come, usually about it's the entire land, uh, about late May, June, uh, the, you get the beginning of the monsoon season, a few thunderstorms, and as the rains come, then the new leaves uh, appear, and then uh, that the, the growing season is through the monsoon, the the, um, the, the rainy season, the, the vasa, from about July through to November. So that's the, you know, the season he's referring to, so that it'll be about so February, March, then a lot of the leaves... Uh, falling off the trees and then when you get to um, uh, end of May, June, July then the, the leaves will reappear again In the forest there are beautiful trees and ugly trees some are bent and gnarled some straight and tall there are trees with pith like a kind of soft core and those without just like people 
There are bad people and good people, crooked and straight people. This is also nature. But in the case of the trees, what are the causes and conditions of their existence? It's the soil and the water that nourish them and enable them to grow and blossom. For us humans, it is karma. Karma means our actions, which cause us to be strong or weak, to have little or much wisdom. Trees have seasons, hot, cold and wet, which occur according to nature. Humans appear according to karma, their actions. Doing good actions, things become good. Doing harm, the results are painful. Beautiful actions make life beautiful, while ugly actions bring ugliness. This truth of the existence of beings is called karma. Today, for instance, why did you come here? You came in search of a certain type of karma. You want to find peace, to be happy and at ease. Taking and observing the precepts today, practicing meditation, listening to the teachings, is a root cause, creating the source, making positive karma. So this, uh, uh, also comparing uh, or seeing our lives functioning according to the the laws of nature, and then comparing the um, what governs the, the growth and the decay of of trees, um, then the um, uh, the uh, he takes the opportunity to highlight karma, and that uh, in this, um, as I, I was saying, that that this is where we can make a difference is in the actions that we uh, we take, the intended actions. Um, there's a place in the suttas where the Buddha says, karma is chaitana, is intention. So if it's a, an action that's, uh, that's taken without intention or is completely unconscious, then it has a different effect or has a different quality than if an action is intended. And so that uh, I think it is, it's interesting how he compares sort of side by side. Hum- the, uh, karma is what causes us to be strong or weak, to have little or much wisdom. So that the um, to go into a little bit of a a, uh, a sidetrack. So when uh, oftentimes when people talk about or ask about why is uh, why do we experience the world the way that we do, and what can we do about it? One of the helpful frameworks that you have in the teachings is called the five niyamas, or the five laws of nature, that you don't get a single sutta where all five are sort of pegged out clearly and neatly. Um, they, they come, they're mentioned in different places in different ways, so more the commentarial um, tradition afterwards sort of packages them together, rather like the Ten parameters that in the year get those as a single, just distinct package in the suttas, but they're more kind of put together uh, later on as a as a sort of unified group. So the five niyamas, in, in a way, it's describing what contributes to our experience of reality like this. So the five, the first one is utu niyama. Utu literally means the weather, so that's the laws of physics and chemistry. So that is completely non-personal. None of us here were involved in discussions on the charge of the electron or how to make gravity work. This is not something any of us were personally involved in. But we experience the nature of gravity, the, the pull of, the, of gravity. We experience the, the chemistry of, of uh, 
the uh, the way of uh, earth, water, fire, and air interact with each other, all the other chemicals, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, iron, uh, carbon, and so and so on and so forth. So the laws of physics and chemistry, our, our very bodies, the world we live in, is totally uh, informed by those laws. But they're not they they they're non-personal and they don't uh, respond to any kind of personal wish. You can't want oxygen to get heavier. Well, you can want it, but it's not. It's not going to. It's not going to bring a result. You, you can't change the way gravity works just out of personal choice. Uh, so that uh, the laws of physics and chemistry, uh, and, and uh, they inf- they are very directly involved in our life, but uh, there's nothing we can do about it. Then the second one is bijaniyama. Uh, so Utuniyama is the first, Bijaniyama is the second. Bija means a seed, so this is the laws of biology. So none of us were, uh, ar- were involved in inventing um, aerobic respiration, the, the breathing oxygen and getting energy from oxygen in the air. That's, that's how we sustain the life of these bodies, uh, uh, but it's, it's completely non-personal. Uh, our, the functioning of our senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the way the body is formed with the vertical spine, and uh, our feet, our hands, our, our organs, all of these uh, uh, function according to the laws of biology. Again, these are not, not non-personal. They're, they are uh, how the world is structured. So that's bijaniyama, the laws of biology. So then the third one is kamaniyama. So that's where uh, Gampo is, is focusing, and that's where action makes a difference. So that's where we can make a difference in in this life, is at Kamaniyama. So most of the Buddha's teachings tend to focus on uh, on action, uh, effort and action, uh, and the uh, the quality of, of mindfulness and wisdom, awareness that is brought to the, uh, the realm of action uh, and the the choice of what we say, what we do, and uh, the attitudes that we, we nurture in the mind. So that's the third one is Kamaniyama, the laws of, of uh, cause and effect in terms of action and its results. As a, and, it's, and it's a moral um, system. Uh, there's a morality in there, in the way that the, the laws of cause and effect work. So if an action is wholesome, and the intention is wholesome, then there'll be a pleasant result. If the intention is unwholesome, then there'll be a painful result. Taking shape in some some manner, either sooner or later, but generally speaking, that's how that uh, functions. And if uh, and if it's uh, it's a, uh, a more of a mechanical action, then the result will be morally neutral, like um, you know, choosing to take a sip of water. It's not it's neither wholesome or unwholesome. It's just a functional act. So then, uh, the the third, uh, the fourth one, see so Uttaniyama, Bijaniyama, Kamaniyama. Uh, the fourth one is Jitaniyama, which is the laws of psychology, how the mind works, how we remember, how we think, the way emotions operate, uh, how thoughts form, uh, and uh, and how we uh, imagine things or how we calculate things. Uh, the, so the the functioning of uh, the mind, how we concentrate. Uh, how the mind gets scattered, and so on and so forth. And again, this is non-personal. We didn't 
we don't uh, have any kind of personal involvement in how uh, thinking works or how emotions work or how memory works or how imagination works uh, these are uh, patterns of uh, the uh, of nature laws of nature that uh, function according to their own uh, order and it's it, it's not something that you can uh, have uh, much of an effect on at all in terms of the the, the laws that the mind follows uh, from a personal in terms of personal will or choice and then the fifth one is dhamma and so that is the fundamental nature of reality uh, the dhamma as ultimate reality and also and then how the ultimate reality and conventional reality uh, relate with each other the condition and the unconditioned and, and such like and so again this is not something that has any personal involvement so kamaniyama is the <laughs> is the target it's the uh, we're affected by all five in in each moment all, all of us experience the the impact the, the the working of all of those five laws every moment uh, that's what we're in sort of in the middle of but kamaniyama that's the 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 that, that's where the attention needs to to sit in a way because that's the where uh, we can make a difference with our life and that we can say use this life for the greatest benefit possible if you want to uh, to remember all of that there if in the little booklet i did on upeka on uh, which is called who is pulling the strings then uh, the little on the bottom of the four booklets on the Brahma Vihara is the purple one, um, with uh, which it focuses on Upeka, equanimity. Then that goes into the Niyamas, uh, if you're interested to look further into that. So also, you know, so um, often we we do think in terms of determinism or fate, or and so when people say say, oh, it was meant to be, Ajahn, some, I, I tend to have a I'm conditioned. My mind is conditioned to have a bit of a reaction, like ah, but a kind of program against the. It was. It's meant to be. It's like, well, not, not exactly. In terms of Buddha Dhamma, that I mean, it's quite common in sort of folk belief, both in the East and in the West, and that there's kind of fatalism or that things are sort of preordained, and so uh, I, I do confess to being a bit reactive around that because. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not a fixed fate. There are things that are quite likely to happen, or that there's a lot of conditions that have uh, uh, come together that make it uh, see, um, more um, uh, more um, uh, things are more inclined to take shape in a particular way. But the uh, in in the, in the suttas. Uh, it's, uh, once in a while the Buddha will say that, that he'll refer to a fixed outcome like that uh, if someone has acted in a certain way and then definitely there's going to be a particular kind of outcome but it's pretty rare and that's usually only in respect to some kind of um, really unskillful action like uh, King Ajatasattu had, had killed his father King Bimbisara and when he, he he came to listen to a dhamma talk, it was fantastically comprehensive, wonderful dhamma talk. The um, 
the samanya palasutta, the, uh, uh, the 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 fruits of the of the spiritual life, and uh, this is kind of one magnificent dhamma talk that the Buddha gave. And then the, the king at the end of the, the talk, then the king pays his respects and, and leaves. And the Buddha makes the comment that um, yeah, if he hadn't killed his father, he said uh, his his fate, his future is sealed. If he hadn't uh, if he hadn't killed his 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 uh, father, the wise and just king Bimbisara, then he would have he would have realized stream entry hearing that dhamma talk. But because of the weight of that karma, then. Uh, he's uh, he's definitely he hasn't he hasn't realized stream entry, and that uh, he's definitely going to have a painful destination after this lifetime. So it's in the at the end of the uh, Samanya Pala Sutta, the, the fruits of the of the of the, the uh, homeless life, and so but it's 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 pretty rare, and uh, and, and and as I said, usually connected with some kind of. Um, extreme act but uh, uh, I feel it's, it's important that the fate is not <laughs> in Buddhism there isn't a concept of fate as such things are preconditioned but not preordained that makes sense so the condition the kind of the elements are there uh, but it's not it's not fixed as how they will take shape or how, what you know how things will turn out there's a fluidity there's a flexibility in the in the, the system um, so that you know if you light a match in a hay barn it's like and if, if you're <laughs> if you're if you drop the match it's likely that you'll start a fire in the hay barn but it could be that the match goes out before it lands on the hay and then the fire doesn't start so the uh, uh, that I feel that that distinction between it's preconditioned rather than preordained uh, is a, is an important one that, that yeah this moment is preconditioned with everything that's come before it but what each of us does with this moment is uh, is open to uh, every uh, everyone here how exactly we relate to this moment is there's a possibility of choices to be made so that uh, uh, what's come together to form this uh, this particular experience of the present that's sort of the conditions are here but it's not fixed what we do with those conditions and that's why liberation is possible so that uh, even though fate is is a um, kind of a, well in in times past it was quite a strong concept in the european mindset but uh, i'd say it's a it's it's not a uh, Helpful, and it's not in a really in accord with with uh, uh, Buddhist concepts or the, the teachings of the Buddha. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Would an extreme act like murder always have the same, regardless of the circumstances, would it always have the same karmic result for a person? For instance, if yeah, if someone were defending themselves if they were going to, yeah, something like that, if they, were going to, they would be killed, if they didn't kill, is it still just, well, nature is still kind of playing out in the way that it does, regardless of someone's circumstances? Well, it's very, it's nuanced. I mean, one of the things, one of the four imponderables, the achintaya, is the, uh, all of the workings of karma, 
So there's there'll definitely be some kind of painful result. That's a that's a there there will necessarily be a painful result. Exactly uh, to what degree and exactly sort of when that will take shape, it, it's not uh, it's not possible to say unless you've got really good psychic powers. <laughs> but uh, so that if 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 you if uh, a person has killed somebody, then to, uh, the intention behind it, whether it was a like a road accident, and that they were um, they were um, they were following the the rules of the road, and they were they were driving carefully, they were being attentive, and suddenly somebody jumped out in front of them that they couldn't they, they were just too close they couldn't avoid. So they they were driving the car. And the person did die because of their their actions. And it's also you know, the laws of most countries, you know, uh, sort of recognise that ac- accidental death or manslaughter or um, or murder they're they're very very different things. So that then, but still, that there's and the, the negative consequences can be just the remembering that happening and the being involved in the sort of shock of the of the situation and the feeling of. Of, of pain that uh, comes from having been involved in that um, and so that it's, but it would be very different than if there was a, like deliberately setting out to take somebody's life because you, you hate them or you want to take the, their, their things or whatever uh, reason you might want to to, uh, to kill them it's a uh, so based on the intention then the, the weight of the, the result the, or the painfulness and the heaviness of the result um, is is uh, is affected by that. Would it be the same then to say that someone who who inflicts a lot of suffering on others because they have been they have themselves been the subject <coughs> uh, the same thing from others and so and that they don't see or they don't have the clarity to to understand or to even help themselves mm-hmm. is it similar then that it's not the same as a kind of more conscious uh, oh yeah again it's it's all it's very nuanced and there's things uh, different factors play into the picture in different ways but uh, so but if someone has had a like a very um, challenging childhood and, or, and upbringing, and they've been very, uh, and they're not aware of the influences that they have, and they're just repeating the patterns that they're not even conscious of patterns. That uh, th- there's a quite a lot of avijja uh, ignorance in the mix there. So uh, even though there you can see what the contributing causes are, still they if they're deliberately creating negative karma like deliberately taking the life of others then you can see where it comes from but uh, the, still the, the, the results going to be accordingly heavy in the, um, the there's a couple of suttas side by side uh, in the Majima in the middle length discourse is called the, the shorter and the, and the greater uh, expositions on karma Chula Kama Vibhanga Sutta and the Maha Kama Vibhanga Sutta. And um, is there, is there, there, it's an interesting juxtaposition because in one of them it's like, you know, if you are, if you are, um, uh, if you are stingy, uh, 
yeah, and you are you are um, you're selfish and stingy, and you don't share your things with with others. Then in a future lifetime, then you'll be really ugly. Uh, <laughs> if you if you take the life of other beings, then in a future life you're going to have a short lifespan. And it's kind of uh, here's the cause, here's the effect. It's very much kind of A conditions B, and it's like a, a sort of a list of these. And then the next sutta, it's. Uh, it says almost the opposite. It says that uh, exactly how karma will ripen, and in, and in what way, shape, and form, you know, you can't tell. And I think it, it, it I forget that how it begins, but it's the Buddha is basically saying. Someone says to the Buddha, "How come this person who's really unskillful, they they they're really um, reckless and indulgent, and you know, how come they got a nice big house and lots of money and, <laughs> and all the kind of power in the world?" And, how come nothing bad has happened to them? And this very good person who is very kind and generous, and they got this horrible disease and their children have died and and uh, they're having all this misfortune. And so then the, the Buddha is saying, well, that you know, the way that karma ripens, it can it can be a long time between the cause and the effect. And exactly how things take shape is not predictable. And so there's two suttas side by side, so they're a good pair in that respect. The, one of the interesting things about the, the uh, and I think the uh, Ajahn Sajita's book, Kama and the End of Kama, uh, refers to it, but there's uh, several places in the teachings where the Buddha talks about the practice of Dhamma as the Kama that leads to the end of Kama. So it's action that's being taken, intended and willed action that's being taken, but it's leading to uh, that uh, quality of wisdom and attunement to to um, to things where there's no more karma created, and the the, um, the seeds of rebirth are not being created. I used to think it was quite kind of yeah. I used to think it was sad or um, just a shame that if it was through ignorance and essentially good heart, good, a good heart in there, but that you could just keep creating more and more um, yeah, suffering for yourself and for others, but that just might not see it. But now, now I kind of see how that, how, the, how just the very action itself has a inevitably kind of has a... Yeah, exactly. So that uh, it's a um, yeah, it's it's, it's complex, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the action itself, because it's been in, it's intended, and, and the action itself is, uh, uh, or it was carried out through through ignorance like that, not uh, in not being fully attuned to the situation, or not say not realizing if you're going to drive a car then. There's going to be there's there's danger on the road, and this is you know you're not taking that into account, uh, or you know as part of the picture. Uh, well, like uh, the, the stories of, of uh, I think I was uh, reading uh, a week a couple of weeks ago. I was saying how they're the stories of Ajahn Chah's ill health that he is hit by this brain damage, uh, at a, kind of a stroke, and was brain damaged at the age of of sixty four. And in the last ten years of his life, he was paralyzed and couldn't speak and couldn't walk and couldn't engage at all. And um, uh, I think I was telling the story of how like, two different people with psychic abilities both said 
independent of each other, that Lumpur Chah had been this famous general who carried out these uh, this when Thailand was at war with Laos, and that uh, this this general was particularly successful, but it was also as a general in the army was responsible for a lot of killing, and so Ajahn Chah certainly ran ran his monasteries in a very orderly way, <laughs> and was an extreme, extremely inspiring, uh, competent leader, but the um, the shortness of his life and the 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 kind of the the crashing of his faculties that, that uh, now that I'm 66, 64 seems a relatively young age. <laughs> that uh, that the the uh, it's easy to see that that's a, and also we in accord with the Buddha's teaching. Like if you're responsible for taking li- a lot of life, then your your lifespan will be shorter. So that's a that's a I would say as a, a natural fit if you give credence to two different psychics giving the same message independently of each other. But also, um, the, uh, uh, I, I, the many years ago I met the, uh, a man called Air Chief Marshal Constantine. I had a, a, a weird illness and I was in RAF Halton Hospital. There was in the, uh, in the, the, the local medical uh, facilities, they said if, he, if there was a kind of strange... Uh, case the, the the local hospitals like in Luton, Watford, Hemel uh, didn't feel they could deal with it. They would take you to RAF Halton, the, the Air Force Hospital. So I had this this weird um, lump in my neck, and they, they didn't know what to do with it. So they sent me to the RAF Hospital. So I was there uh, for a week or so. And so and I, when I was in the hospital, I met this uh, this elderly uh, gentleman. And it was this strange um, encounter because I, I had the operation done on my neck and I was being discharged, and the, but the van from Amravati didn't show up, and so I was sitting in the in the lounge, the, so waiting for the van to arrive, and we, I'd seen this this fellow on the ward a, a few times, and he's a very sort of striking, very upright figure with a sort of RAF moustache, white you know, white haired fellow and uh, he just came up to me and said do, do you mind if I if I uh, if I join you and um, and so he sat down and we had this conversation for about two or three hours well the van still didn't arrive <laughs> and uh, but it was an extraordinary encounter because he had been uh, in bomber command in the second world war he was he was the uh, below bomber Harris the the head of uh, of the the bombing section of the RAF, he was the second in command, and so he had, he had organised um, hundreds of bombing raids over Germany during the Second World War, uh, including Dresden. He was responsible for the raid on Dresden, and uh, and so and he was also he he planned the the first thousand bomber raid over Germany and uh, so he had been responsible for you know a huge amount of killing and uh, it was and it was it was a strange situation it was just the two of us sitting in this la- in the in the, the the lounge of the hospital nobody else seemed to come and go it was just like the two of us and the kind of the sort of bubble uh, and this conversation was going on it was, it was very uh, it was one of those sort of karmically loaded moments and he 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 said 
he wanted to tell me sort of how he got into that situation. He said that he came from a poor family and he wanted to see the world, and the best way to do that, he felt, was to learn how to fly. He couldn't afford flying lessons, and so uh, the the RAF was, was a fairly new division of the military, so he thought, well, I'll join the Air Force and learn how to fly. This was in the in the late 20s, early 30s. So uh, he said in early 1930s he was in a, in a fighter squadron and uh, he uh, and it was between the First and Second World Wars and he said, uh, I was so clueless um, that uh, I, went, went, I went to the commanding officer one day and I said, sir, we're, we're a fighter squadron. Who are we supposed to be fighting? You know, there isn't a war on at the moment. And, and the, uh, his commanding officer said, um, silly boy, the French, of course. <laughs> we haven't had, a, haven't had a war with them for a few decades. You know, they're, they're bound to be next. So that was what it looked like in like, like 29, 30 and so on. So he was a sort of, that was a bit of a career and he learned how to fly. And uh, then when the Second World War began, it became apparent that he had an extraordinary gift for leadership and being able to stay cool in the, in combat situations. And so he started getting promoted, uh, getting raised in the ranks. And he was an air vice marshal by the time he was in his early 30s. And he was like second in command of, of, uh, of uh, the bombing, uh, bombing command. Um, and he said the, the, the raid on Dresden, and he said uh, he, you know, he was very aware there was a lot of criticism negativity of the firebombing of Dresden and he said it was after Coventry and the cathedral, Coventry Cathedral had been destroyed um, it was a it was a punitive raid Dresden was an, un, an, an unmilitary town there was no factories or military installations there uh, and he said the order was a telegram from from number 10 Downing Street and it just said Dresden maximum impact that was it Three words, and so then he said, "So you're in the you're in a war. You have your orders. You ha you can't question the you know the orders coming from 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 the prime minister. So you you do your duty." And then he said, "At the end of the war, uh, they didn't know what to do with him because he was so much younger than all the other high-ranking officers. So they started taking stripes off again." And, they, and uh, they didn't, he said, they, they didn't know what to do with me. And so he said, I asked for a plane. And I, I spent two years visiting all of the different places that I'd bombed. He went every single place in Germany. He flew to them and, and visited and saw on the ground what had happened from their, their raids. And he said, at the end of that time, I'd made a vow I would spend the rest of my life um, making sure that uh, doing everything I could to make sure this never happens again. So it was a it was an impactful conversation, and he said, and at that time, which was 1987, before the the Balkan um, uh, wars in the, the late 80s, he said we've had we've had peace in Europe for the last 40 years. That's the longest peace that's ever been in this region in human memory. So, so I, I do feel, I do feel pr uh, proud of that. So it was a, it was a very powerful conversation, and uh, yeah, and I, I had a very sort of um, uh, <laughs> a 
binary relationship to to the military. I thought, you know, anybody who joins the army must be an idiot, or anyone who picks up weapons, and uh, this is this is not the way to function as humans. But it was such a a, a, a kind of relatable story. Here is just some. It starts off with a, a bloke from a poor family who wants to see the world, and and each increment made perfect sense along the way until he's in this position of of organizing these kind of mass you know, massacres on a gigantic scale, tens of thousands of people being being killed you know, in a single night, and uh, you know horrific destruction, uh, and it was uh, and so you could see that he. And what, you know, why he wanted to sit down and have a chat with a total stranger, you know, Buddhist, you know, wearing <laughs> robes and a shaved head. It's like random spiritual person. I can talk to him. <laughs> uh, and but he, so he obviously wanted to offload um, and to kind of talk about it because he was, you know, he was in his eighties by then and was uh, obviously coming to the end of his life. He was in for a heart surgery and. Uh, replacing some blood vessels around the heart and so on, um, but it was so it was a very powerful conversation, and it really changed the way I thought about the military and how people get into those situations. Because each step made perfect sense, and then suddenly you find yourself in the middle of of this uh, terrible conflagration, and then and then when it's all over, then what do I do with this? But, but this is you know, how horrendous, how awful it, it all was, and his name was on it. You know, it's it's, it's responsible responsible for a lot of the destruction. So I felt well, that was extremely skillful in many ways, having caused that kind of uh, immense destruction, rather like Emperor Asoka, you know, conquered the whole of India before he became a Buddhist. <laughs> The thousands and thousands of people who died on the battlefield that, uh, with him uh, leading an army, but um, I felt that uh, he it was both that he wanted to talk about it and sort of walk through what had happened, uh, but and also how um, he'd done what he could to, to contribute to like NATO and the, and the uh, the sort of peace processes in uh, in Europe. Uh, after the war and to giving his whole sort of career following that to, to try and preserve what peace could be preserved so it was a, uh, you could see obviously there's a lot of immense bad karma involved in that but then also the, the, the human quality rising up it's not just shut down it's like it's not this person's not a demon there's, hum- there's natural human qualities. As soon as the kind of the chaos was had passed, then whoosh, that rose up, and then the other side was given a chance to to manifest. And so, I felt you know also that how many military officers would sit down with a a weird guy in a, sh- in a brown sheet <laughs> and have a two you know, two or three hour conversation? And so that it was an echo of his. And I think his own spirituality that um, was uh, it's there in the midst of all of the, the destruction and also you know the Buddha was a soldier as well he was a kshatriya so there's no record of him ever having gone going going into battle as a prince but uh, 
again, that's one of those places where I, think, I, I feel the editor's pen it's over the centuries. That might be very heretical, but um, even though he's a kshatriya and there, there's always little skirmishes and uh, squabbles going on, that there, there's no record of him during the time when he was a teenager to when he was 29 of ever taking out weapons or going to going into battle but personally I suspect that he did uh, there's a uh, so many military allusions and sort of examples of, of, of similes he uses from from the army and from the battlefield but it makes me suspect that uh, he had a it was at least a few military campaigns of one kind or another Uh, no, he. Um, uh, let me think. No, he wasn't. Uh, he didn't ask about about karma, but uh, um, I think he asked, "How would a Buddhist see all of that?" You know, the, the, how, you know, how, you, are you as a as a Buddhist? How 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 does that that account? Uh, how how would you see that account from a from a Buddhist point of view? I mean, it was it was nineteen eighty seven, which is you know, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so thirty five years ago. Um, but yeah, my he he wasn't sort of worried about going to hell, or he wasn't thinking in terms of that, but just that. Uh, how did that? How would a Buddhist see that story and and relate to to what had happened? Air Chief Marshal Constantine was his name. Hmm? <laughs> like the Emperor Constantine, yeah, the Roman fame. So seven o'clock has come around once again. So, um, let's leave it there, shall we? Unless there's any other questions, thoughts? You were going to ask something, no? I'm already gone. Already gone, okay. Anicca Sankara. Okay, so let's leave it there.